Soccer practice. Coach yelling. Players joking around. Bystanders walking leisurely around the track surrounding the field, barely noticing the players on it. Dusk is settling at Front Park in Buffalo, New York. A picturesque summer day coming to a peaceful end. The players hail from Syria, Burma, Iraq, Congo, Sudan. They're all refugees, young adults forming an unlikely team here on this field, a literal world away from their former lives. They might not win many games. In fact, as of now, they haven't yet won a single game. But what's truly extraordinary about these players isn't what they've done on the field, but that they're here playing at all. I heard the guns, and my dad, he got up, then he saw the people, he had the guns, he killed him. Like, I saw the blood, like, in the floor. Like, everything on my mind, like, changed. That's Muhammad, describing memory from his childhood in Syria, where one morning, as he was getting ready to leave for school, he saw a man gunned down in the street outside his home. He's a 16-year-old refugee, originally from Iraq, and captain of the soccer team. Sports can't make Muhammad forget the frightening images or the enduring trauma associated with witnessing such violence. But they still can help in remarkable ways. And for him, that means everything. Sport is, like, I feel like more than my life. Like, it's so good. Like, I feel in my heart, in my brain. It makes me see, like, different the world. All of it, and the people have to look like. Doesn't matter the religion, doesn't matter how to color, where they come from. We all are human. We all from one God. You have skin, I have skin. You have eyes, I can see. You can see me, right? Yeah. I'm Gotham Chopra from Religion of Sports. This is why sports matter. I feel like I'm part of something like it's real. Being a refugee is a socio-political phenomenon. There is no religion. There is no country. All of them are the same team. In this episode, we follow Muhammad and his newly formed soccer team of young refugees who've all, somehow, found their way to Buffalo. And we look at what their stories tell us about sports, the human spirit, and what it means to belong. When I first came here, I was excited. That's Burhan, an 18-year-old refugee from Sudan who plays for the soccer team started by Journey's End a non-profit refugee resettlement agency in Buffalo, New York. And I saw it's all white and cold, like when the snow comes. My first thought was, do they play soccer here? <laughs> His family fled the genocide in Sudan years ago, taking refuge in Egypt for 10 years before eventually fleeing again during the Arab Spring around 2010 to come to America and resettle in Buffalo. For most refugees... Making it to America feels like reaching the promised land. And at first, Burhan felt that way too. But the reality here wasn't at all what he expected. It was cold, that's the first thing. But after a couple weeks, I started to get like moody and things were not good. And it's boring and it's cold. That initial excitement when he arrived in the U.S. quickly faded as Burhan began to feel isolated and depressed. Like, 
feel like we can't communicate with anyone because we uh, we didn't know the language. I stayed home like uh, four months without going anywhere and just go to the market and come back. No, 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 no one of our family go out, so it was boring and I feel like maybe we're gonna stay like this like the whole the whole life. So it wasn't good, but. I had this thought at some point, like, I want to go back. It was better there. You know, we tend to think of the word refugee has in it this idea of refuge, you know, sort of a safe harbor that you come here and things are fine, things are going to be better. That's Dr. Heidi Ellis, director of the Refugee Trauma and Resilience Center at Boston Children's Hospital and a professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. The isolation and alienation that Burhan describes feeling, she says, is common for refugees when they first arrive in the U.S. In refugee camps, there often are videos circulating of people's weddings. And so then suddenly all the images that people have of the country that they're going to resettle in are luxurious and sort of moments of celebration and piles of food. And and then you get here and you realize that's not the day-to-day reality. And in fact, the day-to-day reality is extremely harsh. Burhan came to the U.S. with his mother and siblings, but his father chose to stay behind in Sudan. He wants to be in Sudan. He's the man who loves his country. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Burhan couldn't bring himself to talk about his dad. It's been years since he's seen him, and he doesn't know if or when they'll be together again. I mean, some of these kids are coming without their family. Some of them are coming with some of their family, but not all of them. And that separation makes it much, much harder to adjust and adapt. So you have, you know, the whole family going through this shift in identity and kind of reshaping their sense of who their family is and what they can achieve and and what their dreams can be. And in the context of that, you know, for a kid, it can be like a crucible. You know, they're at home with parents who have lost everything, who may be grieving for their culture, for the life they had, for all that they had built. And then they go to school and they find they may not know where to begin. Settling into life in America as a refugee is hard for anyone, but especially for kids and young adults like Burhan. A huge part of what they need to do is form their sense of self, their identity. You know, that's any adolescent is going to be doing that as one of the major tasks of that time of life. And now think about taking someone out of a culture, dropping them into a new place where they need to sort through who they are. Refugees are particularly vulnerable to stereotyping, bullying, and misconceptions about them and their culture. Their unfamiliarity with the norms and practices of a new place can greatly contribute to their feelings of alienation. What are the options that our country allows for a young Muslim immigrant? Do we allow an identity that is constructive and a core part of our civic society? Or do we somehow put an identity on top of these youth that come in, suggesting that they can't be part of that, that they're marginalized in some way, or that we see them as as a threat to our country. And there's a youth that I interviewed um, who was a Muslim refugee, and he so poignantly said, they see me as a threat, and I feel I'm a target. You know, it's that duality of when a refugee comes here, are we perceiving them to be a threat to our country, or are we treating them as a target of our discrimination? And if they don't have some kind of welcoming structure to help them step into that, It can be an incredibly difficult time. Burhan did find that welcoming structure in Journey's End, 
the refugee resettlement organization in Buffalo that gave him the opportunity to take classes, get his GED, meet other refugees like him, and also the chance to play on a soccer team with his peers. I just went there to the field and I asked, can I play with you? They said, okay, you can join. And then they became my friend over time. When someone is a refugee, there's all the complexity of humanity and just a kid who wants to do well on the soccer field and be part of something and succeed and be part of something bigger than he is alone. Suddenly, this is not a refugee kid who lost everything. Suddenly, this is a soccer player on a team. Yeah, the more I stay here, I feel uh, like I feel more I'm home because I understand people more. I interact with them more. So they become closer and I feel I'm home. But many refugees, when they arrive, don't have an agency like Journey's End to help them resettle. They have to find other ways to cope on their own. I really craved for any kind of, you know, a sense of belonging at the time. That's Elle, a political refugee from Uzbekistan who came to the United States when she was in sixth grade. I think sports really would have, or any kind of club would have helped me kind of, you know, make that situation easier. And like Burhan, before arriving to the U.S., Elle had certain expectations about what life would be like in America. America is like everyone back in Uzbekistan. It's like heaven on earth, basically. Like if you get to go to America, it's the best thing that can ever happen to you. You know, the, overall, the feeling was that of excitement and just happiness, I think. Then she got here, settling with her family in the rural town of Sevierville, Tennessee, and found it to be totally different from what she expected. There were no refugees, no immigrants that we knew of. I mean, this was 100% white town. She arrived to Sevierville from Uzbekistan at night. The very next morning, her dad dropped her off at school. A Muslim girl in rural Tennessee walking into a sixth grade middle school class, unable to speak a single word of English. They just took me into the class and just let me sit down and I was sitting in the back of the class and that was it. That was my first day of class. And I had no idea what anyone was saying. You know, I would come home and like cry sometimes because I would be so upset that I didn't have any friends or people would make fun of me. And, you know, that's a thing with all the middle school kids probably, but it was especially difficult because of the language barrier. You know, I would do homework with a dictionary. It would take me at least like three times as long as it normally would take another person. My tests would take forever. I would be just ashamed sitting there while everyone was finished. The language barrier made it almost impossible for her to make friends until she finally discovered a popular Disney Pixar film that changed everything. I watched Finding Nemo about a hundred times. And uh, actually my first friend that I made, her name's Nicole, we bonded over our love for that movie. That's the first kind of person that liked me maybe or wanted to talk to me about something. And I was encouraged by that, so I kept watching it even more and I, tried, I memorized the whole movie. Elle was eventually able to learn English, get a 4.0 in high school, and earn a full ride to college. And now, she's become a US citizen. She's a success story. But she still remembers those early challenges, still feels the pain from that loneliness and isolation in those early years. I think these sports teams that are, you know, you're speaking about these refugees, I'm sure it wouldn't make it any 
easier, but maybe just ease them into this adaptation process and make it less difficult and less stressful for them because they already deal with a lot of, you know, outside bullying or judgment, you know, at, at a time that we are in right now, it's incredibly difficult for minorities to fully blend in, feel like they're home. Not only must refugees grapple with the difficulties of resettling into a new country and culture, they must also process all that they went through that forced them to flee in the first place. Often what we're seeing is we're working with kids who've not only been exposed to horrific violence, but that that took place in a context where a lot of the basic scaffolding of childhood, you know, the stuff we expect to be there for a healthy developmental experience is gone. So if you think of some of these war-torn countries, kids are growing up where they can't count on having a school, having access to clean water and sufficient food, where neighborhoods and family structures and kind of all that fabric that we expect to be there around our kids as they grow and develop, it's gone. And in that context, without without that supportive structure of, you know, the stability of the neighborhood and the community, they are sometimes witnessing or personally experiencing the worst of what humanity can be and do. And that type of violence can really shape someone's understanding of their world and the way they respond to it. Which brings us to Muhammad, the 16-year-old captain of the Journey's End soccer team who grew up in some of the most dangerous places on Earth. Sometimes at night I sleep, I cry about the people, the death with my country, what happened. Mohammed was born in Iraq, but he and his family fled the country after the region descended into chaos and violence in the mid-2000s following the U.S. invasion. They fled to nearby Syria, which soon after would become one of the most violent places on the planet. In Syria, Mohammed witnessed some horrifying events. On one morning, as he and his father prepared to leave for school, a car pulled up on the street nearby. The windows rolled down, and the passengers inside unleashed a hail of gunfire at some other men up the road. And Muhammad saw the whole thing. Some cars come in, then like, like I want, I want to go to school in the morning. I don't have a car. Wow, so, wow. He said, don't go out, go down. Because the guns, you know, they killed, they killed the guys. He was 12 years old when he saw those men murdered in front of him outside his home. Even now, four years later, Muhammad still remembers every detail. The gunfire, the bodies, the blood. Everything in my brain changed. Like I saw the blood like in the floor. And everything in my mind like changed. In that moment, witnessing cold-blooded murder from his home, Muhammad says he actually felt his brain change. And he's convinced that the impact of that change still affects his brain today. I can't speak because, I, like, some words can't put in my head because from this stuff happened. The drama, like, so scary, can't put anything in my head. Muhammad wasn't exaggerating or just speaking metaphorically. Harvard psychologist Dr. Heidi Ellis says witnessing a traumatic event like Muhammad experienced does, in fact, change the brain. But what exactly was happening to Muhammad's brain in that moment? 
And how permanent are those changes? Our brain is exquisitely designed to promote survival in the face of threat. We have brain structures that are there for a reason to help us manage in times of real danger. And specifically, the part of the brain that responds to that is called the amygdala. And when we perceive a real threat, the amygdala responds. We either freeze, fight, or flee. And that response allows us to survive. But what happens is when someone experiences continuous threat, chronic threat, or sometimes you know threats that are so overwhelming, that brain system becomes potentiated. In other words, people regularly subjected to fear and trauma become so used to being afraid that their brain is conditioned to always feel that way, even in otherwise safe, non-threatening situations. There's a neuroscientist who has this great expression about the brain being hijacked by the amygdala. And essentially what you see is responses that are as if someone's in that moment trying to survive a war when they're really in a classroom or on the streets here in a country where it's safe. So when Muhammad says something like, in that moment after he saw that person shot in front of him, his brain changed. I mean, that's actually what's happening, right? He's right. He's right. He may continue to respond to the world around him as if it's threatening and dangerous. That's exactly how Muhammad reacted initially when he arrived in Buffalo. He lived in a state of constant fear, as though always ready to fight for his life, constantly flashing back to those terrifying memories. I remember a lot of things back. When I remember a lot of things, I get more than mad. I can't stop. I have to, like, punch someone or I hit the bags. Remembering those horrific events continues, unsurprisingly, to elicit emotions of fear and anger in Muhammad, common emotional responses to the type of trauma that he and many others coming from war-torn areas experienced. What we call fear or severe anxiety is the anticipation of pain in the future because what happened in the past uh, was uncontrollable. That's my dad, Deepak Chopra, a renowned wellness expert. I asked him to provide more context about the emotions Muhammad described feeling. The fear that's generated is pain in the future, which might be uncontrollable. Anger is the memory of pain that you couldn't deal with in the past. So anger is remembered pain, which can be triggered by any uh, even minor comment or a minor uh, episode, which in some way triggers the memory of the previous trauma. Muhammad found that sports helped him to cope with the negative emotions associated with his frequent traumatic flashbacks. That's why I go boxing. Yeah. Because if you don't play sport, yep. the energy inside yep. make you upset. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get the upset from your body or from your yeah. brain, and your life goes down. Sport is, is more, like, I feel like more than my life. Like, it's so good. Like, I feel in my heart, in my brain. Every time when I exercise, I feel better. Boxing soon led Muhammad to soccer, which he hadn't played since he was a boy in Iraq. So it only seemed natural that a young refugee in Buffalo with a love of sports like Muhammad would be a perfect recruit for the Journey's End refugee soccer team. But unlike Muhammad's teammate Burhan, Muhammad had no knowledge of the organization, and it was only a stroke of luck 
that he even learned about the team. He just happened to be walking down the sidewalk one day on his way to the local park to play some pickup soccer with his friends when a man in a car pulled up beside him on the street. The man in the car knew what boys like Muhammad were going through, and he knew how to help them. After all, he'd been through it all himself not long before. His name was Farouk Majid, the coach of the Journey's End soccer team. And like Muhammad, he was also from Iraq. The right hire can make a huge impact on your business. For example, Adam producing this podcast. Thank you very much. Well, let's see how this podcast Yeah, we'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's why it's so important to find the right person. Where do you find that individual? You can post a job on a board and hope the right person will find your job. Or, think about it, how often do you hang out on job boards? I don't know. I haven't hung out on a job board for a long time. Adam, have you? Just please listen to this podcast so I don't have to. (laughs) Don't leave finding someone great to chance when you can post your job to a place where people go every day to make connections, grow in their career, and discover job opportunities. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. And with 70% of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. Am I like kind of one of the right people? Am I in that category? Am I a right person? Yeah. It's the best way to find the right person who will help you grow your business. So hurry to linkedin.com slash WSM and get 50 bucks off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash WSM to get 50 bucks off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash WSM. Terms and conditions apply. All right, guys, Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Adam, I mean, you know, the hoodie you're wearing, uh, you could use a little Stitch Fix in your life, I'm just saying. Listen, Gotham, I'm not sure you are the person to talk about that. Oh, man. (laughs) Just go to stitchfix.com slash WSM and tell them your sizes, what styles are like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your own personal stylist who will handpick items to send right to your door. Here's what I'll say. When I signed up, I was able to select my kind of style. So it's not just for people who are really super stylish. And you and me probably have more in common with styling than you know, me and me. I don't like where this is going. What? <laughs> Is this because of the hoodie thing going on? No, dude, you're always you're wearing you're wearing comfortable clothes. Okay. You okay. know? That's how we make magic. You don't make magic in a button down and slacks. All right. Uh, so this is a compliment actually. Yeah. After, you know, you get the personal stylist who's handpicking your items, then you try them on, pay only for what you love and return the rest. Shipping exchanges and returns are always free. We like free around here. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix when you want. All right. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only 20 bucks, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash WSM and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash WSM to get started. Stitchfix.com slash WSM. It's hard to start a new life when you are 40. That's Farouk Majid, the coach for the Journey's End soccer team. If you are young, maybe yes. And if you are alone, 
Yes, but with wife and two kids, it's hard, but you must be strong to start the life. Farouk is now in his 50s, and he came to the United States with his family from Iraq as refugees in 2008. Before that, he'd lived in Baghdad his entire life. He came of age under the reign of Saddam Hussein, graduating from college with a degree in electrical engineering just before Iraq invaded nearby Kuwait in 1990. Saddam needed engineers like Farouk to assist with the war effort. Farouk, though, decided he wanted no part of Saddam's war. My family hide me till the war done. You didn't, like, leave the house? Yeah. For how long? Till the, I think, four months. After the war, Farouk struggled to find good work in Baghdad because he initially wouldn't agree to work with people loyal to Saddam Hussein. But he finally relented taking a job with one of Saddam's relatives. He worked there for the next several years. I worked with him till 9-11-2001, when uh, the problems happened in Manhattan and New York. Just, I say, oh my God, these poor people, they've been killed. He said, you like the Americans? You will not work with me anymore. So, so he kicked me out. Because, because of this. Because of what you said to him? Yes. Because I said, poor people. Farouk scraped by until 2003, when the United States launched Operation Iraqi Freedom, toppling Saddam and eventually establishing the military central headquarters, the Green Zone, in Baghdad. Through a friend, Farouk wound up covertly working for the U.S. military as an electrical engineer, helping them repair and maintain the Green Zone for four years. He made a nice living and bought a nice home for his family. He hired friends and raised his children in relative safety and comfort. I didn't think about leave Iraq at all before 2007 because I live, I live a good life. When the U.S. troops left Baghdad and returned home to America, Iraq became increasingly destabilized and things became dangerous for Farouk and his family as he was targeted by Iraqis loyal to Saddam. They kidnapped my son the last time, the third time. I will not talk about the first and one second. But the third time, my workers, three of my close workers kidnapped him. They took him from the school and they called me. They said, we need some money. So I went, I gave them the money. I took my son and then I went back home and I told my wife, that's it. We must leave this country. Farouk and his wife immediately took their children and all the possessions they could fit into a car and left at 5 a.m. the next morning. They drove to Syria, the only border they could easily cross on such short notice, and settled in Damascus, where Farouk opened an internet cafe. Several months later, Farouk applied for him and his family to come to the U.S. as refugees. And after some time, their application was finally accepted. But they had no idea where in the U.S. they'd be going. Do you decide where you go? How does that work? At the beginning, they said New York City. Everybody know New York City. It's a famous city. And then, I think five days before I left Syria, they called me. They said, you will go to Buffalo. Where is Buffalo? Is there any city in the world they called it Buffalo? I don't know anything about it. <laughs> so... I, I said, yes, Buffalo, Buffalo. I talked to my wife, we'll go to Buffalo. She said, well, what? 
I said, I don't know. They said Buffalo. It's in New York, but where is in New York? Nobody know. After two days of flying, Farouk and his family arrived in Buffalo, where employees from a local refugee resettlement organization were waiting for them at the airport. That organization was Journey's End, and they helped settle Farouk and his family, helped him build a new life in Buffalo. Now Farouk works full-time for Journey's End, doing for others what the organization had once done for him and his family. Earlier this year, some of his co-workers approached him with a novel idea. They were starting a soccer team to compete in a big upcoming city tournament to coincide with World Refugee Day, and they needed a coach. Farouk had played soccer in college, so he seemed like the obvious choice. Two of our co-workers pushed me to do it because they don't have a coach. And uh, I said, yes, I will, I will do it. The first practice, six or seven players came to the practice. The second practice, I had about 17. 18-year-old Sudanese refugee and Journey's End student Burhan remembers hearing about the soccer team for the first time. It was the best news like we heard here in my program because we didn't have any activity classes or music or anything. So bringing something new like soccer, it was exciting. Most of the team was made up of Burhan's classmates from Journey's End. But Mohammed, their eventual team captain, joined only after Coach Farouk happened by sheer chance to see him walking down the street one day. I was walking in the street. I had my ball in my bag and my shoes going to play soccer with my friends. I saw him. He carry his uh, bag with a uh, soccer ball. I asked him, you want to play with me? He said yes. The soccer team was a ragtag bunch to be sure. And at those early practices, basic communication on the field was an issue. Honestly, it was a little hard because uh, when we played first time, we didn't understand each other. They used donated equipment. And not all of the players got cleats or shin guards that fit. When they scored, they had to chase the ball down because the soccer goals had no nets. Until finally, someone used duct tape to secure some ratty nets to the goalposts. But none of that really mattered. Something bigger was happening out there. At its core, the team was a place of safety, of normalcy, of community. The spirit for the team When I talk to them, look, we will play together like a team. I don't want you to think you are from Syria, you are from Congo, you are from Eritrea, you are from Burma. I want you to think like we are a team and our goal to win. And there is no religion, there is no color, there is no country. All of them are the same team. Okay, guys, let's talk about Four Sigmatic coffee, the mushroom coffee that we've all been having a lot of. So my newest favorite is Lion's Mane during the day and Rishi at night. Apparently, you can put the Lion's Mane in your smoothie, and that's really cool. One of our producers told me that. I haven't tried it, but I will. Look, I like these products because they're less acidic than normal coffee, extremely high quality. They have no pesticides or no mycotoxins. They're made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans. They're jitter-free tastes just like coffee and not like mushrooms, which is, you know, a big perk, includes powerful antioxidants and immune-boosting properties 
boosts your brain and productivity, long used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation that I would know something about, or at least you would think I would. And of course, they reduce stress, improve concentration, memory, and alertness. And best of all, most important of all, tastes great. Right now, when you head to foursigmatic.com slash WSM, you'll get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off any order placed on Four Sigmatic's website. But you have to use my special URL, mine, foursigmatic.com slash WSM. That's spelled F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash WSM. After survival, the second most important need is belonging and what we call ultimately leads to love or the feeling that is aroused called love. The Journeys and soccer team helped give 18-year-old Sudanese refugee Burhan purpose and meaning. I feel like I'm part of something like it's real, like a real soccer team, not just people playing together. Just two years ago, when he first arrived in the U.S., Burhan had felt lonely, depressed, unable to leave his home in Buffalo, wondering if that isolation would continue for the rest of his life. But now, he's planning for a much brighter future. I want to get anything that involved the medical, uh, like doctor, nurse, pharmacist, but my biggest goal is to be doctor. And then there was Muhammad the 16-year-old boy traumatized by seeing people gunned down in Syria in front of his home and whose brain had been conditioned to feel constant fear. Like I saw the blood like in the floor. Like everything in my mind like change. That doesn't mean it needs to be like that forever. We can retrain the brain. So we talked about the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that responds to threat and kind of puts you into that survival mode. One of the things that regulates the amygdala and and dampens that response is a chemical called oxytocin. And oxytocin, we all release it naturally in our bodies, but particularly in the context of safe, healthy relationships. So when we have that intimacy, that safety, our brains naturally calm that amygdala response. And so on a very basic neurobiological level, connection is part of how we heal from trauma. Belonging, human connection, can actually heal the brain from trauma. For Muhammad, the change he felt in his brain in Syria doesn't have to be permanent. It can be reconditioned. It can heal. And after playing soccer, being part of this team, Muhammad has felt his brain change once again, a feeling he compared to filtering dirty water. The water, when, like, when it's not clean, when they clean it, they put something and they clean the water. My brain like, same the water that go down, it makes me see like different the world. Being a refugee is not a medical diagnosis or a psychological problem. Being a refugee is a sociopolitical phenomenon that our world has created. These are people, right? I mean, this is not someone defined by trauma. These are just kids who are part of our community. And if they do well, we all do well, right? I mean, we need to think about how do we 
put in place what's needed for all these kids to to feel a part of something and discover who they are and what they can be. Every June, for the past eight years, a big soccer tournament has taken place at LaSalle Park on the shores of Lake Erie, where the lake meets the mouth of the Niagara River. It's sort of a World Cup of Buffalo. Teams represent Mexico, the Congo, Eritrea, Somalia, countries from all over the world. The players are all refugees, playing on teams representing countries they once called home. A crowd always gathers. A sprawling white tent shelters a feast. Flags of dozens of countries fly from that tent. Additional food trucks and vendors line up to offer cuisines from around the globe. Artists display their work around the park. Children get their faces painted and sing and play drums and dance. Thousands of displaced people, many having survived horrors that made them flee the places they call home, finding joy. As for the soccer tournament itself and the Journey's End team, they were just wildly overmatched. They were the youngest team, the least experienced, the smallest, and the least equipped. A referee stopped play at one point because one of their players wasn't wearing shin guards. His solution? He stuck cardboard into his socks and finished the game like that. They lost their first game by the close score of 2-1. But truth be told, that felt like a victory to Coach Farouk. If you compare the sizes for my players to them, they are double or more. It's much harder because they are better than us. They have been a lot playing soccer, more than us. The second game, they lost by a wider margin, 4-1. to one. And yet that too felt something like a win. We are so happy because we lost 4-1 to one because we must, I think, lose about 20-1. to one. Farouk expected the team to call it quits. The tournament was supposed to be the beginning and end of competitive play for the Journey's End soccer team. No more practices. No more games. Everyone going back to the lives they knew before the team had existed. But that's not what happened. After we, we are out from the tournament, they came to me and all of them hugged me. Thank you very much because you have us with, with your team and we will stay, work with you. Maybe next year we will do better. The players on the team decided that they weren't ready to give it up. Even though they don't have any games scheduled right now, the team still gets together to practice once a week. Just because. Their soccer goal is still made up of that net hung by duct tape. But all the players understand each other now. At least well enough. We always play and never stop, because always forward, never back. I can't speak, you speak. And with it, my team, doesn't matter the religion, doesn't matter how to color, how, doesn't matter. We're all from one God. You have skin, I have skin. You have eyes, I can see. You can see me, right? Yeah. Playing for this team has changed the way Muhammad sees the world. And as he continues to play, his brain will keep changing, just as it did that day in Syria. Only now, it's healing.
Why Sports Matter is a religion of sports and Cadence 13 production. Adam Schlossman is our producer. Brandon Sneed, our writer. Music is from Michael Kramer. Chris Basil and Rich Berner are editors and Kevin Richter, our engineer. Amit Sankaran is the executive producer. Luciano Del Villar and Joe Levin are associate producers. Special thanks to Chris Corcoran, Rich Cook, Matt Havia, Sean Cherry, Giselle Peretz, Eric LeDrew, Kerry Nelson, and Parker Reese. Subscribe to Why Sports Matter on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and know some friends that may enjoy it as well, please share it with them. And we'd be very grateful for a positive rating and review. 